In today's episode, we open our Bibles back to the prophet Micah, now chapter 5. In chapter 5, Micah prophesies the birth of a future ruler to come from Bethlehem. He emphasizes the humble origins of this figure who will bring peace and security to Israel. Despite Bethlehem's small size, this ruler's significance, Micah foretells, will extend far beyond bringing a restoration of Israel's strength and prestige. Well, we can see that this chapter unmistakably points to the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem, which echoes the gospel accounts, but we're going to find out how today in our episode. Good morning and blessed Advent. Also, happy Feast of St. Nicholas. Today is Wednesday, December 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. And Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about all the translating and publishing work they do for the kingdom on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning we're live, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions. You can call into the studio at 800-730-2727. You can also email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on Facebook. There's all kinds of ways to get your question or comment out on the air. But for now, let's move on to our guest, who this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church, Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. How is Advent in Buffalo, Wyoming already? I know we're only a couple days in. So far, so good. Uh, Of course, our first (laughs) midweek uh, coming up this evening. And as you mentioned in the intro, uh, because it does fall on a Wednesday, we are going to be talking about St. Nicholas for our midweek service this evening. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's a good idea. I, I did not plan or think about that when I was planning, I should say. So tonight, uh, yeah, I have a service also. I'm doing just a series. But yeah, that wouldn't have been, oh, if I'd have thought about that. Oh, well, today is is St. Nicholas Day. <laughs> we honor St. Nicholas as being someone, of course, who served the poor and needy, or at least he's known for that, uh, while pointing them to Jesus. So a faithful servant of the church, worthy of being remembered. Uh, anything else going on in your life? I mean, it's been, uh, you know, I know you come on about once a month, but uh, how are things going? Uh, we continue to be just blown away by by the reception of the good folks out here in Wyoming. Uh, we've been here since the middle of July, and uh, we're up a little bit higher than we used to be. So I was in uh, the Fort Wayne area at my previous parish at about 300 feet above sea level. And right. uh, here in Wyoming, our town is at 4,600 feet above wow. sea level. So we've got snow um, and it's it's going to keep coming, which we love. Um, so we're very excited to be out here. Well, that's great. You keep it because the part of Minnesota that <laughs> I am in is not that excited about snow. So we, we, we just assume not have any. But I tell you what, we have a lot to talk about today. This is a great chapter. In fact, especially if you've been enduring the calls for judgment over the past few chapters, uh, this is one starting with the previous, but this is one too that really starts to focus on God's redemption of his people. And we're going to get into all that. Let's go ahead and start with prayer. And if you would lead us in that prayer, I'd be grateful. Let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, as your servant, St. Nicholas, showed forth your grace in his own generosity and mercy and pointing always back to you, so inspire us by that same grace to follow in his train and in the train of all the saints, particularly in this Advent season, leading us 
by your grace to receive you in your humility in word and sacrament so that when you come again in glory, we might meet you with prepared hearts and enter into that feast which has no end. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Okay. Well, today, as I said already, we're getting into chapter 5 of Micah, almost to the end of the prophecy. Maybe we should lay the groundwork, though, because 4 and 5 really go together. Uh, Tell us what's been going on up to this point, and I guess why chapter 5 is uh, such a welcome, refreshing chapter for us. It really is. You, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that. And 4 and 5 definitely go together. In fact, if you follow along in an ESV Bible, um, there are footnotes there that, in fact, in the Hebrew text, uh, chapter 4 includes chapter 5, verse 1. And chapter five in the Hebrew text doesn't actually start until what is verse two in our English. So you can see even back when these things were beginning to be added in these chapter numbers and such, that there was a clear indication and a clear recognition that four and five go together. But to lay that even bigger, a little bit bigger picture, we have a lot of woe and judgment in these opening chapters of Micah, very, very similar to what we see in the prophet Isaiah. And of course, Isaiah and Micah are very closely related because they are writing at the same time in the same place. It's hard to tell precisely what the relationship is between the two prophecies and between the two men, frankly. Um, But we see lots and lots of similarities, particularly perhaps in chapter four, where those opening verses about the mountain of the Lord are almost identical to Isaiah chapter two. And so on the tail of all of this judgment, not only to the people of God, not only to Judah, but then also ultimately to the oppressors around them and the nations and so on. Then we finally get to Micah 4, where we see a little glimpse of that final salvation, where the nations are gathered unto the mountain of the Lord. And that's always in the Old Testament, a picture of the new creation uh, of, of salvation when we have the mountain of the Lord. And then in chapter five, we continue on that. We're going to get some military imagery here in chapter five. And I think in the historical context, that kind of fills itself out and makes a little bit more sense when we remember historically, Isaiah and Micah are writing as the Assyrian invasion and siege of Jerusalem is on the doorstep. It is just about to happen as we're reading these texts. And so uh, when we're going to get to a mention of Assyria later in chapter five and all this military imagery, that's a big part of why those sorts of images are chosen here in this particular chapter. I'm glad you brought that up because when we get to the end of chapter four, verse 13, Um, We see some language that I guess while we're sitting in our comfy chairs and relative peace and security, it seems awfully harsh. Uh, Verse 13 once again says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their grain to Yahweh, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And so completely out of context, separated from what they were going through, we read this and we say, look, God's calling them to beat people who disagree with them to pieces, you know, and it sounds harsh. But now if you take that into the context of invading armies and your families being carted away and 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 your children uh if they're grown or going off to war, if they're not grown, they're they're at risk of growing up without their family. This is a horrible time when such Yes, admittedly harsh language points forward to a victory in these real circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Right. When we look around, 
at, at Israel's situ- or Judah's situation, I should say, rather here, it's, it's, I mean, it's going on hopeless, right? This is why in Isaiah's opening chapters, you get those great Advent texts about the people walking in darkness and seeing a great light and so on, right? And, and we're going to do the same thing here in chapter five, in the midst of all of this military stuff going on around you when it seems dark and hopeless, but you, it says in verse two, right? From you shall come forth the ruler and so on. And and so we're going to get that shift away from the temporal oppression of the Israelites and forward into, it looks bad for now, but I am going to save you. Let's go ahead and read the first, oh, let's see here, five, six verses, the first six verses of the chapter. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. All right, so pausing there. There's kind of a, you know, I I tried to make the pause um, uh, significant so people at home could kind of hear it. There's a pause really between, and he shall be their peace. And when it picks up, when the Assyrians come into our, our land, the editors show this by literally putting in a space. But even in the in the flow of what's going on, we really kind of just finished up four and what was going on there. But it really emphasizes what we talked about yesterday, the now but not yet aspect. So there's a not yetness about the coming ruler, but there's also in their in their situation a now, a contemporary, soon to come, relatively soon ruler who will lead them out of out of this uh, predicament they're in. So take us through this, like show us all the levels that this is pointing to. Yeah, sure. No, that's great. Uh, the the now and not yet, very very adventy sort of theme, isn't it? Um, so we, I mean, we just see all kinds of stuff going on here. Obviously, when we read verse two, "You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah," we immediately jump to Matthew's gospel, right? Um, because this is precisely the verse that the scribes and lawyers uh, that King Herod summons after the arrival of the wise men. This is the verse they go to. Um, the wise men arrive and Herod wants to know what's the deal with this king of the Jews. And, um, and I think it is significant. And I might, I might remember to come back to this later on. Um, it is significant that they, the scribes and lawyers that, that Herod calls upon, that they look at this verse and know that it is about the Messiah. Um, that this is the verse they choose about where the Messiah is to come from, that they're looking at the ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, that they read those words and see the Messiah there. Because really, even in the Old Testament times, as we'll see, and well into the time of Jesus, and frankly, 
even unto today, there is this continued misunderstanding that all of the messianic promises about conquest and about a kingdom for Israel are meant to be realized in time and space, that the kingdom that God promises to Israel is an earthly one. And that's true a little bit and sometimes, um, but of course we can read this in light of the New Testament especially and realize that when we're talking about a ruler in Israel, ultimately we are talking about the final defeat of sin, death, and the devil, that our inheritance in that kingdom, not as people born to Israel, but as people who are members of Israel by faith in Christ, that that kingdom that we inherit is an eternal one, not of this world, so to speak. Um, to unpack a little bit more of that specific prophecy, there are some differences between what's here in Micah and what's picked up when Matthew writes down the quotation from Micah. And a lot of that has to do with the difference between the use of the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, and the use of the Septuagint, which is the Greek of the Old Testament. Um, so those differences are not are not extremely significant, I don't think. Um, but that might be why when you read Matthew 2, um, you notice that it's not quite the same. Uh, but Bethlehem, of course, being the birthplace of David, uh, which is a, a David connection that we're going to come back to again later. Ephrathah, which doesn't show up in Matthew's gospel, is the burial place of Rachel. And that's about the mm. only other place that it comes up in the Old Testament. So Rachel's buried there in Genesis 35. And I have to wonder, when we tie all this stuff together, if there's something about the uh, slaughter of the holy innocents, and it's it's Rachel that's invoked, um, who is weeping over her children. I don't know if there's a tie there somewhere. I didn't dig too far, but I think there might be something there. Um, more significant, as you noted, I think, in the introduction to the show, this you, O Bethlehem Ephrath Ephrathah, who are too little, too little to be among the clans, which is to say insignificant, the very last place that you would expect the Messiah to come from, from you shall come forth for me, the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Um, and then, of course, you have from of old and from ancient days. When we read that in English, hopefully we jump to the ancient of days in Daniel 7 which is a neat connection to make in English, even though that's not actually what it says in the Hebrew, <laughs> uh, which right. is fine. Um, still a neat little place to go because what this hints at, that from of old is actually the word for uh, something being in the East or out of the East, um, which in the Hebrew is often used kind of, um, uh, kind of as a, a picture of something being there from the beginning. Right. Um, if something is in the East, it is from the beginning. And so you get from of old. It's not an inaccurate translation. But when we think about that, then, that this ruler is from of old, he's from the beginning, right? Which is precisely what we confess, for example, in John chapter one, um, that the word was with God and the word was God. And so likewise in the Nicene Creed, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, and that from ancient days in Hebrew is actually the word for everlasting or eternal. So we get a similar confession there as well, that this ruler who's coming out of this tiny, insignificant town is actually going to be God himself. And we can see that even here. Uh, that connection then in verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And I think that's a pretty clear reference to the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. Uh, but this giving them up until the time, 
reminds us and those in Judah at the time that the tribulations that they're enduring, the uh, attacks and invasions of the Assyrians and a little bit later into history, the Babylonians and so on, um, God is going to let those things happen. And that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, yeah. for perhaps especially for us. Um, but this is God giving them over to those things. He's going to let that discipline, that suffering come upon them until the time when Jesus is born. And that doesn't mean the tribulations stop, unfortunately. Um, but in that grander now and not yet sense, we can we can kind of lay the second advent on top of it and say, these tribulations continue for us in the flesh until the second time Christ comes. The second time, of course, in glory uh, to deliver us from those things. Um, I've been talking a long time. Do you want to take a particular? No, yeah. Here? Well, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> brother. I'm just taking it all in because it is such good stuff. You know, it's just the things that pop out to me, and and maybe this is kind of well known, but even just the naming Bethlehem Ephrathah, talking about it being too small, too small as you already illustrated, too small to be listed off when you know Joshua's giving out the land, but it's there. It's in that land of Judah. Bethlehem is the is the city. Ephrathah is like the clan or the, um, how can we say it? Like almost like the county. And so this area of Ephrath uh, is where Bethlehem was. And I've always, ever since I learned this to be true, was fascinated with the fact that Bethlehem really means house of bread and Ephrathah means fruitful. So I just, I love that imagery too, that, that God is doing these things on purpose, even hundreds and hundreds of years before any of it would ever make any sense on why it comes together. But this one who's coming forth from of old, from ancient days, I like how you explain that. One of the ways I looked at that is I sort of insert words uh, in my mind when I'm reading it, which isn't always a good thing to do in the Bible. Actually, it's almost never a good thing. <laughs> but but I always say like whose, whose coming was told from of old. I, I kind of, I don't know, just oh. instinctually add that. Um, and, and again, I think there is this sort of from the beginning, uh, you know, middle and end sort of everlasting alpha and omega-ness to it, as you described. But there's also this idea that they've been waiting a long time for a savior. Um, well, obviously from Eden. And he, 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 ha he is coming. And when he comes, of course, he will be eternal. And then the giving them up, as you already illustrated, this idea that God's going to like abandon his people, so to speak, while they suffer. Um, not exactly the connotation, but that's certainly what it feels like on the ground. It feels like God, because he's in control and could stop evil, um, he doesn't. In fact, he's utilizing these exiles and the Assyrians and Babylonians and everything to discipline his people. So I think there's a lot, even in these first few verses, that we can we could wrestle with as as our own people, because we think, well, we're waiting for Christ to return. Yes, he came, but we're waiting for him to come back. And yes, um, sometimes it feels like God is not with us, even though we know he is, but, but we're looking for that restoration. And we were looking for this time when we get to dwell secure too. So yeah, just this whole passage, obviously pointing forward many different ways to the redemption of the people from Assyria, course, to Christ who ultimately fulfills it to the end when all of it's made complete. Um, yeah, there's a reason why I picked Micah for Advent. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, great, I mean, really unheralded, I think, because we so infrequently hear it in our lectionaries. 
Um, the minor prophets are just not books that we tend to read nearly as much as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and and then of course the Gospels and the letters of Paul. But there is just so much cool stuff in here. Uh, and the more that you read them, the minor prophets, uh, the more stuff you find that can that can kind of connect in your mind back to those major prophets and even forward to the Gospels and some of the things that Jesus says while he's preaching and teaching. The next well, no, image that gets well, picked actually, up. Actually, oh, before you even, before you even go into the next image, I just want to say even this idea that that um, Judah, the clan itself, is in birth pains. Right, they're the ones who are going to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, and so there's also a connection not just to Mary, the mother of our Lord, but also the fact that they are suffering now. But just like a pregnant woman recognizes that her labor pains are only yeah. temporary, they have to know, or at least the God is telling them they should know, that since the Messiah is going to come from them, they're not going to be destroyed. There, there's hope for them as a clan anyway. Yeah, no, that's great. Jesus and Paul both pick up that very same idea, in fact, um, which is, I mean, it really is remarkable. Um, it's its interesting, now that you've said that, um, to connect that back, in fact, to this odd, just kind of odd language back in verse one, oh, daughter of troops. Um, it's obviously meant to be kind of uh, artistic sort of language. We're probably talking about a city here. Uh, and daughter is just kind of used as an image of that. But this connection over and over again to to these feminine pronouns uh, and feminine nouns, a daughter of troops, um, you know, until she has given birth or she who is in labor, rather. And to remember, too, that there is a layer for us to find in here. And we were talking about prophecies of the the labor pains and giving birth and all of that, maybe particularly in Revelation, where you see the woman who gives birth and is taken away into the wilderness and sustained by God, um, that there is also a layer in there of the church as the body of Christ or as the bride of Christ, um, and which is always described with those feminine nouns in the scriptures uh, and, and in the church fathers and so on, um, that, that we can find ourselves there as well, um, that, that not just Judah historically, but all of us as the bride of Christ, we, we will be given up so to speak, not abandoned, but given up to the discipline of the fallen world um, until the rest of the brothers return to the people of Israel, which is to say when Jesus comes again in glory to uh, to bring us home. So that next image then in verse four, that kind of ends with, as you mentioned, kind of ends with verse 5a, if you will, um, is, is this shepherd image. And shepherd imagery is all over the place in the Old Testament. And in fact, when you read Matthew's gospel, where you have the quotation from Micah, he skips a few verses and picks up this shepherd image right at the very end of what the scribes and the lawyers say to Herod. They include the shepherd image. They go from Bethlehem, um, coming forth from of old, from ancient days, and then they skip to the shepherd thing, which tells us that's super important. When you think about what what else does the shepherd image bring to mind, hopefully King David, another David connection. Um, this shepherd image has already been used, in fact, in Micah in chapter two, and again yesterday in chapter four, uh, and directly in conjunction with this concept of the remnant that we'll pick up in the latter half of chapter five, and we can unpack that a little bit more. Uh, here in a few minutes. Perhaps the most famous shepherd image in the prophets is in Ezekiel 34, 
And I think probably the most famous shepherd image in all of the scriptures is Psalm 23. When we kind of let all of those things come together in understanding what it finally means when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you, when you kind of bring all of that together and what it means to be that the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23 and what it means in connection to the remnant of Israel in Micah chapter 2, chapter 4, and then in Ezekiel 34, the good and also the wicked shepherds. Um, that just, I mean, what a dense, dense, rich image that is. And you can, I mean, we could spend the entire hour just on the image of shepherd in the scriptures. Um, the latter half of that verse, they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Reminded me of the Old Testament reading for this past Sunday. Now we're in the one-year lectionary. So the Old Testament reading was from Jeremiah 23, where we hear the prophecy that in his days, meaning the days of the Messiah, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. That same kind of language that with the arrival of the Lord, of Yahweh, with the arrival of the Messiah, who is, of course, Yahweh in the flesh, there in him we dwell securely and he shall be their peace. Um, which of course, in my mind goes to Isaiah chapter nine, where he is called the Prince of Peace, uh, which of course is the name of the church that I serve. So uh, <laughs> a very, a very Advent and Christmas heavy kind of, um, kind of thinking in my mind, at least what a great name for a congregation. Um, uh, just just that, to pick up, well, I just want to emphasize that. So Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Prince of Peace. That same idea picks up in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the reason why I wanted to uh, highlight what you're saying is because, right, we think of Jesus coming, peace on earth, the Prince of Peace, here he shall be their peace. And then Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring, bring peace but the sword. Uh, and, and a lot of people yeah, pick right. up on this idea because we want to know, well, wait a minute, a couple of things. One, if you're the big Prince of Peace, where is the peace? And then secondly, um, you yourself have said, Jesus, that you are uh, coming to divide, not to unite. Now, obviously, that's going to take a uh, long I mean, We're not studying that particular passage, but I'd kind of like to hear a little bit about how we can reconcile the idea that we know that Christ is peace. He's reconciling us to the Father, but where's the peace? Yeah, that's and that's precisely what it is, right? When we grab onto the concept of peace in Hebrew, shalom, right? That there is just, there is so much packed into this idea. Chief among them, I think, is explained in that, Ephesians passage that he's broken down the dividing wall, right? And when we talk about the peace, the peace of God, which passes all understanding to grab onto another place in Paul's letters, um, that, that we are talking about finally a fixed relationship, a, a repaired or restored relationship between God and mankind. That when we fell into sin or when Adam and Eve fell into sin and then the rest of us with them, that they're came into the picture a, a chasm, if you will, a gap now between the divine and the human. Uh, there was fellowship between God and man, and that was broken by sin. Um, and so this is why it's so significant, at least in some part, uh, that Jesus is both God and man, because he alone bridges the gap between the divine and the human. And by his death on the cross, 
uh, brings brings us back into fellowship with God. Now that all having been said, we then can look around and recognize what we still suffer the consequences of the fall. Creation itself suffers the consequences of the fall. And so we have to understand this piece in, in kind of two layers, as we've been talking about. There is a now and also a not yet that we do have forgiveness of sins, even here in time. We do have a right relationship with God the Father, even here in time. But the redemption that Christ is working and the ultimate salvation that he is working is not finally complete until he comes again to make all things new. So that there is, again, kind of those two layers that we are restored and even regenerated, born again in holy baptism, that we are joined to Christ's death and resurrection that saves us from our sins. But while we are here in the fallen creation, we still endure those temporal effects. But we do have that promise that he is coming again, right? And when we think about temporal peace, I so often go back to the, uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard that that those those people who came in at the first hour of the day they got the same wage as the people who came in at the 11th hour and there's i think according to the flesh there's some righteous indignation there but it is so so important to remember that those who came in at the first hour had safety and security and they knew where their next meal was coming from and they had peace and they had a purpose for the work that they were doing all day long they were never without and when you think about what is it like for one of those people who's at the 11th hour, which is to say, what is it like to live in this life on this side of glory, not having the peace with God that is worked by Christ? You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if you're going to get to work at all. You don't know where your next meal is coming from and so on. You can unpack that image quite a ways, in fact. But I think that's, that's the kind of way that I would think about it in two layers there. We do have peace with God now. And in eternity the peace will become even greater than it already is. Well, you know, I, I tell you one thing. I do know one thing that is going to happen next, and that is a break. So we're going to take it, dear listeners, listen and <laughs> contemplate uh, the words of our guest. We'll be right back when we see you on the other side of these messages. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo. I'm your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. And we've been talking about the Prince of Peace, who is to come. But before we head back into Micah 5, 
Just remember that if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, or you can even call into the studio, 1-800-730-2727. That's 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your questions or comments out on the air. But for now, let's head back into the text with our pastor. Yeah, you were doing an excellent job. Sorry we were up against a break, but there is this tension that we face where Christ has brought us peace, and your um, uh, exposition of the workers in the vineyard is extremely helpful to me because that's an aspect, while I completely agree with you, I'd never thought of before, that they get the same rewards in the end, but there still is a benefit to those who don't wait till the last minute or or even those who say uh, had to endure the heat of the day. No, you, you were at peace during that time. What a wonderful explanation. Yeah, I, I don't I couldn't honestly tell you where I stumbled upon that, but I, I was really kind of pondering how easy it is for us who have been Christians all of our life or most of our life, uh, you know, or, you know, if we were brought into the church as babies or children, we don't remember not being Christians. And it's so easy for us to read that parable and to think, well, yeah, they should be mad at that. And and to kind of have that bitterness in us about deathbed conversions and things like that, um, to kind of frankly go with um, the older son in the parable of the prodigal son from Luke. You know, it's that same kind of attitude. And the reminder is, you know, look, it's so easy to overlook, but we have so many blessings and benefits as Christians, even on this side of glory. And I think chief among them is that peace with God that we can be certain of because of, of course, the saving blood of Christ. Indeed. Well, we just got to the Prince of Peace. We haven't really, you were getting ready, I interrupted you, so you were just getting ready to talk to us about <laughs> the when the Assyrian comes into our land, the last couple verses that we read. Uh, just because it's been a little while since we read them, I'll read them again. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Uh, you know, as Christians, it's easy for us to connect most of those pieces from Isaiah and other places. This part is a little, you know, this isn't read at the Christmas nativity. What's it talking about? What, what is he talking about here? <laughs> That's right. That's right. This one's not in the lectionary. Um, so I think what's happening here is that you, you see a shift in who is speaking, um, sort of, that Micah has been speaking, right, with God's voice, so to speak. Um, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock and so on. But now the pronouns change. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him. What I think we see here is a little interjection or an interlude of Micah and his people, of his, you know, whoever's there in Judah that he's speaking to, kind of saying, yeah, okay, we have God on our side, so let's defeat the Assyrians when they come in. Um, and, and however, right, um, this is a little bit of arrogance on their part. Uh, and this, I think, starts to hint at the the confusion that does exist around the precise nature of the work of the Messiah in terms of restoration of the kingdom, that, that Jesus nowhere promises a specific restoration of an earthly kingdom. 
And again, you see that confusion endure to the time of Jesus. And as I mentioned, I think even until today, when, you know, frankly, as Christians, we have a hard time talking about the unrest that's going on in the Middle East right now, because we have, because we're a little uncertain of how all of this kind of stuff interacts, um, you know, when we refer to that as the Holy Land, and then we're not quite sure how Israelites and Palestinians really interact with each other historically or, uh, or in modernity and all those kinds of things. And, and this is one of those places where the confusion comes to light, where the people in Judah are saying, well, yeah, but, but we can defeat them, right? We will raise shepherds, which is a nice little twist of the image from the previous few verses. Okay, God's going to shepherd us. We're, we'll put up shepherds against Assyria then and eight princes of men, right? That this is a, this is a human effort to defeat Assyria. And um, we, of course, know how that ends. Uh, Historically speaking, they use the word Nimrod, which is awesome. Uh, Nimrod's from all the way back in Genesis 10. He's described as a mighty man or a strong man there. And I think that just, again, plays into what they're up against in Assyria, but also their boldness and confidence that they're actually going to overthrow the Assyrians. Um, And he shall deliver us. There is a little glimpse of that confidence there. He shall deliver us. Um, Whether that's the shepherds and the princes of men that they are putting up, or whether that is a little glimpse of their trust in God to deliver, uh, I think it's probably the latter, that we are going to put up these earthly military forces against Assyria, and yet it will be God who delivers us. Um, I think we can kind of see both of those things kind of uh, maybe even in a little bit of tension there that they recognize there is going to be an earthly battle, and yet it is God who fights for us, just like, for example, in the book of Joshua, that happens quite a lot, um, and, and things like that. But I think, again, we are starting to get this hint of the confusion that really comes to light during the intertestamental period in between, uh, in between Malachi and John the Baptist, and, and at the time of Jesus, where the Israelites, the Jews, are confused about what exactly it means that Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel. And we hear that from even the disciples who are confused about that from time to time. Well, let's keep on going. I'm going to get into the next section and starting with verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from Yahweh, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears into pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Let's take a break right there at verse 9. So 7, 8, and 9 so far talks about a remnant of Jacob, but this remnant is scattered amongst many peoples. What, what are we getting at? Yeah. So this remnant is a huge, huge deal in the prophets. Um, you get this, this really prominent theme in Isaiah. Um, and when you when you kind of recognize what it is and zoom out a little bit, it's actually a pretty big theme in the entire Old Testament. But this remnant, which is simply to say the, the people who are left, the faithful left on earth, right? Um, God is going to preserve them. In uh, in the opening chapters of Isaiah, the remnant is described as a lodge in a cucumber field, which is one of the strangest little phrases mm. in the entire okay. Old Testament. Um, but uh, I, I still am not 100% sure what that means. Um, but 
it, this is something you that, we can that I was sorry. You sensed that I was about to ask you, what does that mean? <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of a shack. I think the, the word there in Hebrew is not, does not indicate a real uh, structurally sound sort of building. Um, sure. I think it's survival instead of like uh, prospering, so to speak. But well, and not to um, not to belabor it, and I know you want to move on, but the image that it gave me growing up in North Carolina, we had a lot of immigrant workers who would work in the tobacco field. Well, oh. I'm sure they still, I'm sure they still do. And so, because they were, you know, migrant workers, they would often come. They'd get like a trailer, a mobile home, put it on the right next to the land that they were working. Twenty or thirty of them would live there together, really in uncomfortable conditions, but they were there just to work and then go home. And and so right. that's the image I get. It's kind of like a you're not this is temporary, but yes. you're still out there working. That's anyway, that's the sense I got when you think of a shack yeah. in the middle of a field. Yeah, very much so. Um, so there's kind of two things going on with this concept of remnant. And the first one is that there is a little bit of comfort for us as Christians because the temptation in the world today is to look around and see our numbers shrinking. And we can't really help but measure things that way. And we're like, oh, the church on earth is shrinking. Well, first of all, God is continuing to add to the saints in heaven. So the church isn't really shrinking. It just looks different. Um, but more importantly, I think for us here in the flesh, it's important to remember that at one point in the history of the world, the church was all the way down to eight people. And it's right, still here. Right. Exactly. Um, and you know, um, so so there is that comfort, right, that God over and over again promises to preserve the remnant, that he will keep the remnant, that we are always going to be here. Um, but more importantly, still, that we see in the midst of many peoples shall be among the nation in the midst of many peoples, that phrase repeated there in verse eight, that uh, I think we can remember Jesus' words that we, like him, are in the world, but not of the world. And historically, it's important to remember that the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered by the Assyrians eventually, right? Um, when we talk about the destruction of the northern kingdom, that's what we're talking about. Um, and, and, you know, historically, it's hard to nail down precisely what happened to all those people. Um, no doubt some of them were taken captive and some of them fled and ended up in other places and so on. Um, and when you get to, for example, First uh, Peter opens by saying that he's writing to the scattered elect of the diaspora of of the the dispersed Jews, right? Um, so we get a little hint there as well. But that's that's what we're talking about, and and we see that play itself out in Christianity today, that we are in the world, even though we don't belong to the world, we're not of the world, and we are scattered. We are everywhere, and yet there's a great yeah. comfort there as well that we are everywhere. Um, it was said, I don't know if this is true or not, um, but I heard it said once upon a time that the United Methodist Church had a congregation in every county in the United States. Hmm, interesting. And I, I don't know how true that is anymore. And of course, the United Methodist right, Church right. is dealing is dealing with its own stuff now. Um, but But how remarkable that, I mean, when you think about, you know, pretty much every town in the United States has a church of some kind. Now, you know, we can talk about denominations and all that, but not today. <laughs> but, you know, um, but, but, there are, the, uh, but there are Christians everywhere. The the Methodists, I think, if I remember correctly, were very much behind the circuit rider movement. And so, uh, in fact, a lot of uh, worship practices among evangelicals and some Lutheran practices owe itself to those, you know, early 
uh, Methodist circuit riders. So I could see that specifically with the Methodists, but you're absolutely right. I, I don't know of a town in the, in the United States that doesn't have a place of worship. That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and again, with us in the Missouri Synod, we're pretty big on altar and pulpit fellowship and things like that. But to remember, right, that the remnant is preserved, even though it's scattered, that we are all over the place in the United States and around the world. And it's, you know, easier and harder, depending on which part of the world you live in, to be openly Christian. But we are still everywhere by God's grace. Um, And to remember that as members of that remnant, God will preserve us. Then we shift a little bit and we start looking to the end. He picks up some really odd images here um, because now the remnant is the lion among the sheep when usually as Christians, we figure that we are the sheep. Um, And here that image is kind of reversed and it picks up again that same kind of odd imagery of military victory and destruction that God's people will see and experience um, that we're actually going to win the ultimate battle, not by our own strength, of course, because you get lots of passive verbs now all the way to the end of the chapter that God is going to do these things and that these things are going to happen not from us, but from God. Um, and are, I think, kind of culminating there in verse 9 and then 10 to 15 um, rounds out the chapter and gives us a, a reversal of that wartime imagery that we pick up uh, very prominently in Isaiah, for example. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. But there will come a day. Christians, that the final enemy is defeated. There will come a day when Jesus returns in glory and warfare is no more. And that's then, we haven't read them yet, but that's really the ultimate point of what's going on in 10 to 15 as well, that we won't need the horses anymore. We won't need the chariots anymore. We can, as we read in Isaiah, we can beat our plowshares into, or uh, the other way around, but you get what I'm saying. Um, you know, the image, (laughs) yeah, that's the one, that's the one. Well, Um, you know, I'm looking at this things anymore. Yeah. I'm looking at this too. And what's interesting as as you explain it, I'm going back to seven and, and I see this sort of the gates of hell shall not prevail against us language that you're talking about. The church is on the offense and, and the enemy won't, uh, won't be able to withstand it. But I also see in verse seven, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, which we experience today. But then it describes it as things which are benefits from God, like dew from Yahweh, like showers on the grass. It's not talking about wilting flowers or grass being thrown into the fire here. It's talking about the people of of God being distributed around the world, uh, but for a benefit, like dew and and rain showers. Um, But then, of course, it does say, as you say, that there is coming a time, though, when, and again, to take a language not even present, the gates of hell shall not prevail, right? We will uh, tread down and tear into pieces uh, those who are um, against the Lord. And of course, that's all the Lord's doing, but he works through means, and that's what the church is here for. But I like that first image, though, to illustrate it, that we're also here as a benefit. It's not just sort of to own the people who disagree with us or to rule over them. That's simply not how we are to be, Uh, but we are to be a blessing to them. That's so important, right? And that really goes all the way back to the promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and again in 15, right? In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, right? That is part of being Christian on this side of glory, right? We're still here. More and more are being added to the number of those who are saved, right? And that's the whole point. That's why we're still here. God's not done making Christians yet, right? 
And so to remember, right, then you do get both and we kind of have to hold them in tension. And I think it gives a pretty strong impetus to our, to our mission work and our evangelism or our witness or whatever word you want to use, uh, depending on context, those things all kind of hint at the same idea, uh, which is simply sharing our faith with the world, right? And bringing more people to Jesus. Um, and yet at the same time, there is that warning that we get here, we get at the, the last few Sundays of the church here, and we get kind of in the background of Advent that there is going to be a day when all of that stops, when it is, as it were, too late for those sorts of things. Um, when, you know, for us as, as the sheep, uh, contra the goats, um, then, then there is nothing but peace. Then there's no more animosity with the world. There's no more animosity with one another. There's no more sin, no more suffering, and so on. There's only peace. We find that at the end of the church year, in the background at Advent, as you said, and also very clearly in the last few verses of our chapter. So I'm going to read verses 10 through 15. And in that day, declares Yahweh, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. That's the end of our chapter, the end of our text for this morning, uh, talking about the end of the world. But as we look through it, though, we see here God's jealousy for his people. And of course, I mean that in a good way because God is jealous of his people. Yeah, that's a, and that's a neat, a neat way to put that. Um, it really is. And that's hard for us to grab onto sometimes because jealousy is almost never a good thing in a human context. Um, I remember, in fact, as a field worker, while I was still in the seminary, that was one of the very first questions that a parishioner ever asked me while I was like wearing a collar. It was one of the first theological <laughs> questions I ever fielded. It was like, what does it mean that God is a jealous God? Because that's not a good thing, right? And in human terms, from the human perspective, it's really not. But it is so important to think, you know, when you, when you kind of think a little bit bigger picture about what that means, that God is jealous for you. That God knows because he is God, and he is, you know, a great king above all gods, as we sing in Matins, that, that he is the only one who can save you. He is the only one who offers true and lasting eternal salvation and peace. He's jealous for you because he wants you there in that peace with him, right? He desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why he's jealous. He's yep. jealous when you turn away from him because he knows, because he loves you so deeply. He knows if you chase after any carved image or Asherah or whatever, they're not going to offer what he can offer. Human, human jealousy is usually rooted in the person um, being selfish, whereas God's jealousy is rooted in wanting what's best for you. Uh, one way someone described it to me, gosh, a decade or so ago, and it stuck with me, is that jealousy and envy are two different things. Jealousy is to be concerned that someone will mm. take what you have, whereas envy is to want what someone else has. So envy certainly is sinful, but jealousy, even, even human speaking, can be good. Like I'm jealous for my family. I wouldn't want them taken away from me. 
but but typically it's very selfish in human <laughs> human reasons. You think of the jealous boyfriend, jealous girlfriend, that kind of stuff. But even in the case of say the jealous wife or jealous husband, uh, you know they might experience or uh, display their jealousy incorrectly. But still, the the sense of it's not necessarily bad. But yeah, God, He's jealous for you because a He loves you, He wants you to be in the best possible situation. And so I think there is a, a good aspect of jealousy and we see that in God, but in here it, it comes out as false gods, false idols that we dedicate ourselves to. No more shall you bow down to the work of your hands. And I'm always sort of internally amused whenever I hear my confirmation kids, usually for the first time when we're talking about this, say something like, well, it's not like we have or make idols anymore. And it's just thinking, you know, oh, my goodness, that the world (laughs) worships idols. Yeah, we don't we don't build them ourselves very often anymore, I guess. Um, But, oh, my, do we build them with our hearts and our minds all the time? Um, And and that's, you know, that that's included here with all this war imagery being reversed. Right. And this is a callback again to that piece, to that. Right. What is the opposite of wartime? It is peace. And that's what we're landing on. But we also can see that this is then looking even further, not only into the future, so to speak, as we realize the very fullness of our salvation, um, but but also deeper into the human condition, that we will not only have a lack of conflict and a lack of war and a lack of, of need for, for those things, but what's he also removing from us? He's also removing sorcery and fortune telling and carved images, which is to say false gods, right? And that is, I mean, what an amazing comfort that is to think ahead to in the day that the Lord returns, we don't have to do battle with the false gods of our flesh anymore. We don't have to struggle against those temptations of our hearts anymore because we will truly be made clean and truly be at peace with our God. That is a great note to end on. So I would like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Thanks for having me again. Always enjoy being with you. Folks, tomorrow we're going to move into Micah chapter 6, which is a profound dialogue between God and humanity as the prophet challenges the people of Israel to remember their covenant with Yahweh. The chapter concludes with a reminder of God's expectations for his people to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.